0: Stories. Stories by Soho House There are rules that we're following that simply aren't good for us. The biggest mistake I feel we can make is, is sometimes believing that the way things are is the way things have to be. But the rules seem to be fixed, increasingly in favour. The same people win, the same people lose. We know that. That's been the case for a long time. But it's starting to feel like we've run out of time. And... Increasingly, that the only thing worse than a really stupid rule is the people following it.
1: Welcome to So House Stories with me, George Lamb. In this series, I'm going to be talking to inspirational people from all walks of life, as they tell me what inspires them and how they got to where they are now. My guest this time is Sam Lande.
0: Um, My name's Sam konefe and I am both the co-founder of Liberty, the author of Be More Pirate and increasingly a professional rule breaker.
1: From setting up the award-winning marketing agency Don't Panic to founding the massively successful youth-led creative network Liberty, Sam's work has always centred around making an impact in the world. Earlier this year, he wrote the book Be More Pirate, which not only explored the often misrepresented history around 18th century piracy, but also asked us to use their example in how we challenge the big ideas of our time.
0: The story of pirates that we recognise from Peter Pan to Jack Sparrow is fun and romantic and sometimes even a little bit sexy if you're thinking about the Johnny Depp version, but it is less than half the truth. It's what survived over history from a true story that the establishment didn't want us to know because in truth, the pirates were the working-class heroes and social revolutionaries of their age. So how did you end up doing what you do, Sam? Well, the truth is a bit of a diversion, really. I only worked out the truth when my second daughter was born, and I tried to understand a bit better my journey in life. And I found out a whole bunch of stuff about my dad, who died when I was five. And uh, as I pieced it together, it turns out that actually my entire adult life has mirrored his. Really? Yeah, spookily.
1: That's really interesting, isn't it?
0: It was really odd. He... Is your mum still alive? Yep, but she hadn't. It was... He died quite suddenly. She was left alone with two small kids. It was all a bit of a trauma, and they dealt with it a bit Victorian. So we didn't even get to go to the the funeral or anything. So like, so, and then when my daughter was being born, I was aware that I didn't want to bring all of my heritage bullshit into her life, as as is the nature of of parenting. Um, and so I started digging around about it, and I started my first business with this loose notion of changing the world, and it was really raves and nightclubs and design and stuff. And I don't know how did you so you
1: started doing raves. Genuinely, like this, this is going to change the world. Yeah. Because yeah. I did raves,
0: but I didn't feel like I was going to change the world. I felt like we were going to rave. <laughs> no, no, we we had all these positive statements. There was no kind of logic between it. But yeah, save the world. It said on the back of our flyers Really? Yeah. What were they called? Your rave, Supernature. Right. Okay. It was there in the name. It was this amazing book about how we are as human beings going to evolve into a supernature. Okay. I'm like, yeah. Exactly. So you've been what... on it from from day one. You've known. Well, maybe not day one, but
1: from. 21, maybe.
0: Yeah, yeah, 18. 18. So I left home and school at 18 and got a job and started putting on raves. What
1: drew you towards
0: raves? I had to get the fuck out of Croydon as fast as I could. I could feel that one really coming. I didn't want to go any further with... I'd wasted my time through A-levels and education, smoking weed, and not, not knowing that it wasn't right for me and didn't want to waste my time going to university. And I like making things. And so I got a job as a chef and I got started putting on nights and I knew that this back message of doing good was kind of important to me, but I couldn't quite work out how it had happened, but it didn't turn into a business until I started designing flyers. So knocking out the flyers for our nights and then other people's nights. One well,
1: people are going great flyers. I really like your flyers. Sam, could you do my flyers? Exactly.
0: I bought one of the first Mac laptops and I'd knock up these terrible, probably terrible flyers there. Um, but again, because you're naive, breaking all the rules like using on you know the, all the images that you don't have rights for and bastardizing them and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then it turned into a business, um, in my bedroom called Don't Panic. And right. so we I remember to, Don't Panic, right? So, you remember those do all
1: the flyer packs, yeah, exactly.
0: And then you remember on the outside of it was this kind of poster magazine type thing, so that was the next level of Save the World. So, we got to work with. Banksy and Shepard Fairey and a lot of kind of up-and-coming artists then who shared this uh, mentality of we need to make a message and a statement and we filled it up with all the nightclub flyers and we took it on the road. It was like classic kind of startup journey. Got my friends in to come and help me. We got a warehouse. It just really, really, really grew and grew. Didn't know what we were doing. And then I woke up probably 18 months in, nearly 200,000 pounds in debt. Really, what, my 22nd birthday because it was all cash and I hadn't I had no business sense whatsoever. That was the first of the death threats I got in that Don't Panic time. Really? So very unhappy printers. We hadn't been responsible with what we were doing. And they were burly guys and they took it very seriously. And so they should took it very seriously. Um, what
1: Were you just partying or...?
0: Well, there a lot of cash would come in and then over the course of the weekend we'd pay all the guys in cash and we didn't really have a sense of what we were doing. Um, I was just too young and too excited. It just was exploding and you know, everything was going seemed to be going Everything's great. Everything's going great. Look She's at amazing. this. Amazing. It's fantastic. At cash. We're here. Look, everyone wants to work with us. Uh, and so I had to cut some very serious deals and work very hard to get us out of that level of debt. Um, and so I had to take Don't Panic out of the world that we knew and loved, which was clubs and record labels where you might get to work with a couple of grand if you were lucky, but you know, usually a few hundred quid, and into the world of marketing and agencies. And in there, we found people with money and budget and desire to get to you know, a youth audience, and we're pre-social media, so Don't Panic represented a fast conduit to street and youth culture. And it, to me, represented the kind of budgets that would get me out of this shit pit okay. that we were in. It's a beautiful potential marriage on the cards then. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And in some ways I felt a bit like I was selling the soul of what we stood for, but in other ways, we, you know, we hadn't really defined what the soul of what we stood for was. And and
1: did you? Was there any chat about kind of like purpose at that point or whatever? or
0: yeah, it was clear. It was in the editorial. So, one side of the poster would be an advert, and the other side, we would, me and my friend Joe, who still runs it now, would write. And it's, you know, it was angry stuff, you know, massive like campaigns against Esso. There was the one we did with Banksy. And it's just like an a absolute diatribe. You'd never get away with writing now. Um, or just get off your ass and do something, messages. And so it became quite clear, and it was in our editorial around the poster. <laughs> I
1: Love it, ironically, in the in the flyer pack. <laughs> you need to get off your arse and stop laying about and doing gear. What's up with you?
0: Yeah, exactly what you want to read on a Sunday morning. Although it was, turns out it was. You know, we hit yeah. the right time, the right tone of um, mildly cynical questioning. What is up with all this mess? What are we all doing? Um, shall we do something a bit more positive about it? And that poster adorned walls all over the country. Don't panic, really grew, um, and we took over a number of other flyer companies and it became a, a, a part of the culture of the time of the moment and I think and don't panic still is a, a, a rebellious voice within all that space even though it doesn't do any flyers or or anything anymore what does it do now um it makes really excellent activist videos so if you saw the amazing save the children video about refugees in Syria or the the video that that broke the relationship between lego and shell um which was a kind of a, an animation of lego characters dying you know being drowned in oil so really strong campaigning creative stuff and Joe still runs it. So the spirit is absolutely there still and true, but the medium has changed completely.
1: So and then at what point did you move out, of, don't panic, and start the next thing?
0: So I discovered this world of agencies and brands and, and and suddenly this idea really hit me. Like, look, here are a bunch of smart people with real power. Like, look at them. You know, they're my age or a bit older, um, but they've got the budget for Nike this or some chewing gum brand that. They've got a huge amount of money. They're just dawned on me that perhaps the opportunity was to steal the power that was out there. Because all, all these smart, every question I'd have with them was like, isn't this interesting? You've got all this money, and budget what are you going to do with it? How are you going to make a difference? They're like, I'm not, I'm just going to shift some more chewing gum. And it was 2001. So we'd just gone past the millennium. We hadn't all died. No logo had just been published. So that notion of questioning corporates, Nike was being lambasted as the post of Boy of sweatshop labour and Enron had just made CSR famous by going to prison for their crimes. So there was a beginning of a real question. So the idea of Liberty, the marketing agency, began to be born in my head and the question I started to ask people in the advertising industry was, is ethical marketing an oxymoron or could there be a way that all of this power and influence which is currently just used to selling shit that we mainly don't need could be siphoned off in a direction where it does good as well as delivering on the objectives of these necessary businesses that are in the world who are gonna do their stuff anyway. And it was, we called it an experiment. We called it a Trojan horse or a pirate ship. We called it a number of different things. We wanted to look and feel like the best agency in town we would do the most exciting work. But once we've got you aboard as a client, we would move the cogs and levers within your business to turn you into a force of good rather than just a force of consumerism. That was the- I love it. That was the idea.
1: 2001 that started.
0: May the first International Workers' Day, 2001. Right. Fight the power. So we're
1: 17 years on.
0: Yeah, we are. How's it gone? It's gone amazingly. It's gone amazingly well. There are two things that really define liberty in my world. One is that notion that we work on brands and with big business and we get them to be a better business in the world, a more responsible business. And secondly, that the doors of the business are always open and the most important people in the room, because it looks like any other agency anyone's ever been into, if you've ever been into an agency, um, and lucky you if you haven't, um, like exposed brick walls and more max than the max store and all the kind of usual stuff but in liberty on a busy day you might see 100 teenagers and, and young people and they really? you and whether you're school college university whether you're trying to start up your own thing whether you're in real trouble whether you're on a, on a on a probation order you can come into liberty at any time that it's open and use the space as long as you're there to work and if you don't know what you're working on we'll give you some work to do you can work on our projects uh you can start your own business you can do anything whatsoever Um, So what, you just hired a big office
1: and you left half of it empty?
0: Yes, massive warehouse in the middle of Brixton. Really? Yeah. Lots of dedicated open desks for young people to use. At times we've built studios in there that young people can use. We had a record label run by young people. We created projects. There was a magazine that young people could run. The first thing you see when you come in is all the pictures of the last group of young people that have left. It's kind of graduates, so you know this place is for you. A lot of young people who come into Liberty don't feel like there's a place for them. And then very quickly over time they felt like it was their place. And you come in there when the... I always used to think when I was in, in charge that the measure of success of a day was when the number of young people in the room outweighed the number of kind of adult professionals. Right, And you'd know this because the spark in the air changed, the music went up, you know, it got a bit more... Vibey. Yeah, yeah. yeah, And you know, a few people who'd been there maybe not so long would complain that you couldn't get any work done and you'd know they weren't the people for, for liberty. Uh, and the kids felt like they were truly in charge of the office and they were. And so having your own space space i think is a really important and essential part of it and there's not very many places that young people go to that they feel like they do own it they often feel like they're they're not welcome or they have to all, all the time be a lesser version of themselves to survive through it and so we're not getting the we're not getting the benefit out of them so i think the the notion of giving space giving space to fall over to explore to fail to do all that kind of stuff is is what we really don't do especially in school you're just shunted from one thing to the next but then there's also a danger in giving uh, young people who haven't been given the chance to think for themselves giving them a blank canvas because it's really scary and we saw that lots with liberty you know the guys the most troubled guys would come in and be like fuck you you know and they'd, they'd only ever sit as close to the door as they could and there was one young woman shades on kind of hood on wouldn't speak to us at all and she was forced to be there by a probation worker as close to the door as she couldn't it took months to even get out of her and all she thought was like you dickheads you know what are you doing all this all this stuff here for uh, and it took a long, long while for that space to have its effect. And then suddenly you saw the blossoming and the blooming of her. And suddenly you couldn't you couldn't have a client come in the room without her being introduced to them or, or you keep her away from meeting. And she brought all of her intelligence and imagination into the space and she eventually was put back in touch with her school and they wouldn't let her back in, but she did all of her academic work in Liberty and, and completely mirrored the coursework and ended up getting 9A stars. No uh, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah completely fucking smashed it beyond any expectation this girl was a home carer she'd been excluded from three schools you know she's a young black south london woman so statistically if you put all of those kind of numbers in a box and came up with a formula you'd be like possibly a lifetime of welfare and cost you know the way we look at these things and when i sat down with her at the end of this journey and uh, i said can you can you capture the moment that it all changed you know because it wasn't us you know we've, we're here doing the same thing holding the space like you said tell us the truth and she really thought about it. And she said, oh, yeah, I can. I can remember the first day that I realized you lot really did like me. And that was it. Like, And, and, and the like and all the power that that word has, has kind of got and lost. And that she decided really in that that she could like herself. And that was what the power of space did. But you had to be there long enough and be patient long enough and give enough stimulus and stuff to do when they're not interested and then space to go and make when they are interested them to find themselves and then once they found and i used to call it the purpose curve it's fucking hard to get some of those kids onto it but once you've got them onto it it's even harder to get them off it how's she doing that girl now she's studying neuroscience really yeah she went to she went to, so beautiful you know, some of my journeys of young people are amazing because in my mind they're all still teenagers from the time that i worked with them and they're all now in their 30s and many of them are flourishing i think you know uh, you did a bit of work a long time ago with zazie yeah, so she came through really? Liberty in the early days. Jordan, who's a the sports presenter on Channel Four, and Cyan, who's uh, Cyan Anderson, who presents on One Extra, and Julie Adenuga, who's on Beats, and that is incredible. You know, and those are the guys who've done chosen in, in media. There's another set of entrepreneurs, and a whole set of teachers, There's punch guys in music, and they now become the role models to their peers because I think this. This notion of we, we've let that generation down so badly, they don't look up to role models at the moment. I think they look sideways to role models. But fortunately, like one of, one of Liberty's legacies is these you know, inspiration bombs of all these other, in my mind, my words, young pirates around them who are proving the rules are stacked against you. So the only thing stupider than a stupid rule is the person following it. For the talented, smart kids who are on the edges of trouble, who don't quite know what their momentum or motivation is supposed to be, Liberty is... Completely transformative. And the one journalist came in and was there for a while and she summed it up that you're basically a proxy middle-class uncle for a bunch of working-class kids (laughs) who don't have someone who looks over their shoulder, tells them they're going to be all right and can introduce them to some good work experience. That's kind of a a, a blunt summary. Yeah, 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 totally. (laughs) first I was like, no, 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 don't. Yeah, 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 kind of is.
1: Why do you think there's not more uh, middle-class uncles out there holding the space?
0: But we've got all the middle-class uncles we need. They're just not comfortable opening their doors. Right. You know? And that's the the biggest transformation we see is the clients who come in, and after they've come in and they've had this amazing experience of working with smart inner-city young people who are frankly amazing and full of imagination, uh, they'll reveal to us that they were oh, I was quite scared that they were going to nick my stuff or you know what really? they'd really be up for doing, and and that's really where the big the big job is. And we've got this this huge polarity problem. So a recent survey. Of several thousand young people who are under the age of twenty were asked whether or not they had trust in big business. No, overwhelmingly no. But what percent do you think said yes?
1: You asked a load of young people if they trusted big business. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Two percent. One percent. Six percent said 6%. yes. They trust in big business.
0: Yeah. Um. Vice versa. Uh, at the moment, there's a lot of uh, there's a huge growth in this kind of social action or volunteering. Young people are starting campaigns or doing you know stuff on their own time, not for money, yeah. but. For the sake of doing good And it's heading towards About 64% of young people Have been involved in it In some way shape or form
1: What in some kind of Campaigning or activism Or whatever Yeah volunteering to
0: help out Starting a campaign You know Wow Under the broad term Social action And the adult population Who were asked Assumed that it would be Less than 10% Maybe 6 or 8 Wow so the adult perception of young people is terrible. The young people's perception of business is terrible. The truth is somewhere in between, of course. You know, there's a lot of really smart people, good middle class uncles, lots of our businesses and organisations who'd be welcome some of these young people. In. And that's the frustration of it all. We do know what the fucking problems are. We're walking around going, well, why are we in this mess? And of course we do. You know, There's a group of young people who aren't being given any of the opportunities they deserve. And do the opportunities exist? Yes, they do. So we've got the resources. We've got a good understanding of what the problems are. We're just fucking terrible at joining the dots between them. So
1: 17 years now of doing Liberty and we, we you know, we can see it's working and, and uh, the climate's changing and, and, you know, what are we going to do next? Because that's, you know, like I, I spent, you know, I've spent the last five years listening to podcasts, watching documentaries, reading books. And then you always just come back to like, OK, yeah, but what am I actually really going to do? Like, what's happening here? Yeah. I've, you know, I'm as guilty as the next man. You know, I've had periods where I've done nothing about it. I've talked a really good game. And then, you know, literally you're like three years later and you're like, wow, I've actually done nothing
0: inspiration without action leads only to frustration or to put it another way. And I think the question we need to ask ourselves is talk minus action equals shit. And we don't have time for shit. The time is upon us to make some choices. And really the choice is which side are you on? And my departure from Liberty, I'd always joked that I'd have to leave when I was when I turned 40. And it turned out it wasn't no joke. So as I began to leave, I, I was asking myself exactly this question. So would the world have been, you know, how different would the world be if we'd never been here? Now, where does this change going to come from? I'm so resolutely let down by the, my proximity to the people in power and I keep waiting and thinking one day you're going to meet some real grown-ups who actually know what they're doing. But I've been around them long enough to know that they just are not there. So where is it going to come from? And yet fundamentally I keep drawing this inspiration where the real action happening is these guys on the edges, these young people who are being overlooked. And so I started shouting all of that into a, a book. That was my, my transition project to ease me out of liberty, to keep me out of the way of the new team. To, to address a chip on my shoulder about dyslexia and, and not being academic. And I wrote it all out into a book, a book about action, a book about the, the kind of change that I think we need to see and make in the world. And I called it Be More Pirate because I was using an analogy I've used many times about pirates. You know, it's kind of a, a lovable, rebellious rogues that we're all familiar with. And I discovered something remarkable. That history has rewritten the, the true story of pirates. That uh, 300 years ago, the golden age of pirates, the ones we kind of classically know, were millennials of their age. They were all in their 20s. They'd been absolutely let down by society. There was huge redundancy going on. There was a totally self-interested establishment that was completely caught up in its own self, and they'd been locked out of the promise of their future with this backdrop of international conflict that was being blamed for everything. And rather than just to continue to complain about the bad deal on the table, they stepped outside the rules of society, took onto their ships, and rewrote some new rules of society based on fairness Uh, on justice, on equality, and became the working-class heroes of their day and social revolutionaries who stand for the exact kind of change that I think that we need to see in the world now.
1: Did the working man love pirates then?
0: You can draw a clear line um, through the disruption that took place around the the Civil War and the, the debates that we were having about rule and whether we should be ruled by the monarch or the the formative conversations around democracy that took place um, in the Putney debates right through the levellers all the way through, I think, to the, the the suffragettes. And in fact, the direct follow-on from the pirates is the cooperative movement. I think the the next generation of pirates, after they were finally crushed 30 years after the Golden Age, um, you see the, the the hometowns of pirates, which is all up and down the west coast of England, predominantly Wales. The cooperative movement forms in exactly the same place, and really? the seven founding principles of the co-op movement are found within the pirate code. So there's a direct line. And what between. are they? Uh, it's about independence. It's about fighting for fairness. It's about cooperation between one another. Um, it's about not being overwhelmed by monopoly or profit or greed. It's about education within the community. So. I mean, the original pirate code has these things in it that are surprising. So there's a there's a written down policy around fair pay, total pay transparency on board a pirate ship. Everyone got an equal pay with with a with a, um, a tolerance between higher and lower. Um, there is uh, the first time we'd ever seen written down a notion of workplace compensation or a pension. If you got damaged, if you George lost a leg on this mission that we're about to embark on, it'd be eight hundred pieces of eight the first time ever a a pensionable scheme of social care was written down. Because
1: they were just fed up with people going to war or whatever, coming
0: back with one leg and saying, oh, sorry, mate. They were all bullied in in the terribly stratified world of either the Navy or the Merchant Navy, which is the biggest employer of the time. Yeah, and if you got injured then, you were left for dead. So this is unworkable, so we created a new system. There was was huge diversity, so they were regularly freeing uh, slave crews and giving them equal opportunity and equal say in the matters on hand. They built a democratic unit, so the captain was given a a counterpart in the quartermaster who had the voice of the crew and could outvote the captain uh, at any given moment. So if the captain was deemed to become a bully or, or enact the kind of policies that they'd seen before in the exploitative world, they could get rid of him, depose him immediately... Uh, There were female pirate captain leaders in a time when women were judged to not just be of equal capacity but of lesser intelligence. So yeah, and their stories then went around the world, around the world. And you saw figures like Anne Bonny and Blackbeard and Henry Morgan being held up in both polite society and in poor society. They were on the front pages of the Penny Dreadfuls. They were in Penny Operas. And they were so powerful and successful they took these ideas off their boats and onto land and they formed a proto-democratic island in the middle of the Bahamas. Where they survived for another ten years, living these principles, really? and organising under these principles. Yeah, proto first proto democracy, more representative in terms of democracy than had ever been seen on Earth until that time. Because really, all we're basing it on up until then is ancient Athens, where only the white blokes had a vote, a third of society. And in pirate society, everybody had a say in that. So
1: who? So who did the who did the hatchet job on
0: pirates then? Well, the problem for the they, rest. They is, need a new press. They need liberty. There's this. Um, but that's what the book is about it's return so i think there's this kind of missing part in the evolution of who do we look up to and and we understand the journey of the civil rights movement and we can point to that and and understand what we need now when we're trying to address those issues we can point to the suffragettes movement and thankfully we're, we're reminding ourselves of its leaders at a time when we need that kind of leadership but for a generation who are being fucked over and are missing a set of role models i think actually honestly and even though I know at times people think, what are you really talking about? How are you going to put pirates on a level with the suffragettes and the rights movement? For a generation, the pirates are absolutely the, the working class heroes in the social revolution. Why
1: don't we make a film about pirate, real pirates? The real pirate story? I would love to.
0: That's the only way you're
1: going to get everybody to pay attention.
0: Well, strangely, the book has done really well.
1: No, 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 I didn't mean to. I didn't mean <laughs> no, I don't. Right. This is a waste of time, mate. I don't know why you bothered with it. What he um, got?
0: He's got this book yeah. in front of him. I'm sure you no, can
1: see it. Uh, no, but like, it, I, I I, mean, I don't know if you've done this, but if you went out into the street and asked people, uh, do you think pirates did X, Y, and Z, you yep. know, and, and went through that list of the seven code of the pirates or whatever, I. I can almost guarantee you now that 99% of people have no idea of that and actually they'll think completely the opposite. They'll th- we all think as pirates as a
0: bunch of wrong-uns. Yeah, well, which is what how they've been sold to us. So, yeah. And partly because they did it themselves. So there's some pirate economists that I tracked down and they argue strongly that the pirates were some of the least violent people on the seas at the time because there was no uh, legitimate or practical reason that actually they should be attacking anybody because they didn't have the resources or, or any way to replenish themselves. So... Arguably, they created the world's first uh, global brand. 150 years before Coca-Cola, who we largely think of, the the skull and crossbones was deliberately designed as a viral meme that drove their profitability. Now it meant that they created this story and narrative, and they definitely there's some really fucking dark and dastardly deeds, but by and large, far more exaggerated than the truth, and far less bad than the kind of the keel hauling that the navy was doing, like the absolute torture. Keel hauling. Heel hauling is you a chain would be sent all the way around the boat and it would be joined when one end of it was t- tied to your wrists and the other to your ankles. And then the chain would be pulled so that you would then circle the boat and your body would be pulled underneath all the barnacles mm-hmm. of the bottom of the boat like razors in seawater, salty seawater pulling you apart. Then you'd be dragged out of the water, off the other side, nearly drowned and then across the deck and then back around. The Dutch Navy came up with it. And the navies used to use it as a legitimate punishment. Wow. They were grim times, so the kind of the grimness of the pirates does have to be taken in the context of the times, um, not in, in any way, shape or form glorifying the, the the rape, torture and pillage that, of course, some pirates did do. But we're missing out on the upside of the story, which is an important factor massive of history. upside. So this everybody else
1: was raping and pillaging and all the rest of it anyway. So. Far
0: far worse. And there's this there's this quote I found uh, that's in the book that uh, Colonel Benjamin Bennett is reporting to the Lords of Trade in 1718, so exactly 300 years ago, and asked to report back on the pirate threat. And he says the pirate threat is great and of great concern, uh, not just because of the bit we know, like the camaraderie and the rum and the plunder and the women. Uh, second paragraph, it's because of the cooperative nature of their organizing, of the democracy, of the care for the injured. You know, Stuff that didn't exist. There wasn't any welfare. This is pre everything that we now hold to you know, cherish uh, the first place on earth that began looking after its people in this kind of this, this proto-democracy so this idea that there's this one petri dish on earth where this rebellious seditious form of civilization is kind of forming was so against the monarchistic rule that was everywhere else they, they sent the fucking fleet and crushed them. Not because they'd successfully been stealing for 30 years, which was crime in itself, but you know, that's a participant of what everyone was up to. It was because the uh, they were ahead of the curve on democracy that the times weren't ready for. Right. So that's why they got written out of history. And, and honestly, the, the, the parallels with exactly 300 years later, a frustrated group who desperately need a different way of doing things, who are not, you know, the answer is not going to come from the top. And that's the, the fundamental, most difficult truth no one is coming to save you. No one. There isn't a grand plan. The grand fucking plan is there, but it's a disaster. And waiting around... Stop waiting for the cavalry, guys. There is no cavalry. There is no strategy. There is no grand master plan or people who've got your back. And we need a an uprising within that generation to actually demonstrate what the future looks like. So how are we going to do it? It's ultimately this pirate code. So these principles, um, they, were, they were decision-making principles. The pirates were thousands in their, in their total community, yet they operated in small teams, and somehow they were able to run their entire community based on values and they were values held so strongly that they didn't need to be written down. In fact, sometimes if they were written down, it was your, your own death sentence. So what we're missing now is a sense of value, You know these, these values upon which we are willing to determine ourselves. Uh, and whether you think of it from a political point of view or a societal point of view, what, what, do, we, what do we align around? We haven't got that consensual politics of what we want to be. And We've got one metric of success, money. And yet, deep down, we're all searching for a deeper meaning, and we've, we've lived with wealth long enough to know that it's not delivering. You know, even the even the one percent know it's not. They know the pitchforks are coming for them. The rest of us know that there's something deeply wrong.
1: So we've written down we've written down the the pirates code.
0: Well, what I've proposed in the book is it's time for Pirate Code 2.0. And okay. I know it's a tiny bit glib in 2005 to stick a 2.0 at the end of something, but as it's a, a few
1: years ago you were writing it anyways, as a vehicle. <laughs> you,
0: you get it. Um, and I put it out into the world. But you know, there's a lot of books out in the world, and uh, so I had to make a bit of a bang with it. Actually, the day before it was launched. I got a couple of high-vis vests and went back to my club promoting days and I fly-posted the front of Penguin's offices on uh, Vauxhall Bridge Road. So four, la- four lanes of traffic between Vauxhall Bridge I was
1: going to call you out earlier and say you lot used to do fly poster, didn't you? but I didn't know if
0: that was fair, but good. No, no, we certainly did. Um, yeah. uh vis vests, and I forged a letter from the chief exec, who's a very nice man called Tom, uh, and everyone just assumed we were doing it. And their front windows are the size of a Routemaster bus, and so glorious pink, the colour of the book, totally did it and then sent an email around and was like what the bloody hell have you done uh, but the next day it just just took off this story and even like branson was retweeting it and the book arrived in within the top hundred of all books uh in that day which you know, there's not much room for because it's predominantly joe wicks from one to eighty i'm and, mates with joe i can speak to joe about this if you want he can help yeah if he if he could tell me when there's going to be a little window yeah. in his, <laughs> his next release yeah. schedule i'd love to get in there um and then it's held on it's held this kind of bestseller status and it's and it's hit a nerve and then uh, very quickly, something happened, which, to- so the surprise enough that people liked it, the surprise that people wrote it, uh, read it, uh, the surprise that I managed to write it. Uh, and I got this email. Dear Sam, really enjoyed your book. Uh This bit particularly spoke to me. And as a result, I've resigned. I'm forwarding you my resignation letter so that you know there's been an impact. Thank you very much for reconfirming what I said. I was like, what?
1: Don't do that, mate. Let's <laughs> go do that. Have you got kids? Yeah, what? no, yeah.
0: And so I reached out to her and...
1: So how did you know, that feel, by the way?
0: Um, Very scary. Yeah. Surprising, because then... It, it's
1: interesting though when you call it, isn't it?
0: Yeah. 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 And then it, and it happened the next day. And then two days later, there was three. I've got over 50 resignation letters that have been forwarded. Really? Yeah. Wicked. Uh, I've got people who've said, "Right, well, that's fucking it. You know, the thing I, I want... Because it says, I mean, what's the rule you want to break? But like, the pirates isn't just... Breaking rules, it's replacing them. So, what do you want to change? So, people who started campaigns, I had one young woman whose friend had been illegally detained in, under that whole kind of Windrush nonsense that went on. And she campaigned to get a friend release based on the back of the book, got in touch with me to tell me what she was using, and successfully freed her friend. I got another guy who wanted to take a campaign against gambling shops and fixed odds gambling. So, huge issues that are in the world, kind of from big, small individuals and organizations falling in line and if I could sum them all up then the narrative is you have articulated a fine point on the frustration that I felt so clearly that I now feel like I can take action and I'm going to it's kind of like a legit
1: falling down moment <laughs>
0: Do you know I mean? yeah kind of yeah and it's it's interesting to me because in marketing for the last few years you know, we've bandied around the word movement far too many times so I've sat on either the receiving end or the delivery end of like bullshit loads of movements oh we're going to build a movement around this fizzy drink it's going to be a real movement um and here I am at the foothills of the movement and I don't really know what to do about it. I think I'm nearing 400 messages of some kind I'm of doing clear something. rebellion. Yeah, But I'm also now getting a message from people saying, you know, you promised this movement and I signed up and I got your newsletter, which was quite funny, but that's no fucking movement. What are we going to do? And I'm asking the question out in the open. So I'm struggling to like, you know, I need to get my head around what, 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 what facilitating or managing this movement looks like pretty quickly because there's potentially a fuck ton of good that can be done because something in there has empowered people to take action, positive action into their own hands and actually I think I'm arguing that professional rule breaking is, a, is the new 21st century skill and the, the phrase I, I loved that I stole from him, an American congressman is, is how do you go out and get in some good trouble he makes this amazing commencement address where he encourages students across the UK to find a way to get in the way to go and cause some necessary trouble and some good trouble. I think it just kind of captures the paradox of the times that we're in, that, that just doing good on its own hasn't got us where we need to get. And how far do the rules need to be stacked against the same people again and again and again before legitimately breaking them is the right thing to do? My daughter was, um, well, my eldest daughter is How five, old are your kids? Five and a half is Scarlet and Frida is 11 months yesterday. Um, And the book's dedicated to them. Uh, as I discovered my dad's book was, dedicated to me, going back to that story of mirroring him. Um, and this, this this is now in my mind very much because Scarlet, while she was very happy to see her name at the front of the book, she then flicked through and she's like, so what's it really about? So I tried tried to have a conversation with her about the future and sometimes not being not doing what you're told is the right thing to do. And then I got a call from school. My wife actually got the call from school again that week <laughs> saying, something seems to be wrong with Scarlet. She's been throwing things on the floor and like chucking her jacket around and she'd gone to school and just started breaking rules like it really? was the right thing to do. So I tried to find a way to kind of summarise this, you know, right. hell, before I get myself in real trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I took her to Westminster Square where the statue of Millicent Fawcett was unveiled in in June and explained, this woman, in the time she was in, broke all the rules and she put herself at risk, she put her jobs at risk, she put her family at risk and luckily, for all of us, she did. Because over time, she helped write the new rules. And we looked, I was looking around the square and realized that every single statue up there is for someone who broke the rules. Pretty much someone who put their neck on the line, who risked it all in the moment they're in, because they realized the right thing to do was arguably the wrong thing to do in the moment. And luckily for all of us, they did. It's
1: the nuance of, of like rules uh, for just like morality, putting the kids in the cages, bad rule. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's about being able to and obviously at, at five and a half understanding the nuances of, of you know, like just rules generally,
0: like uh, or or actually stuff that just doesn't make sense from a moral perspective. And and, and do we have that strength in us? It's one of the things to talk about in the book, you know. Maybe a little bit of rule breaking every day should be considered a alongside going for a jog and eating your five a day. Because when the time comes and you really have to be ready to break the rules, most of us are really hardwired against that notion. But when you do, when you do challenge something, when you do defy something, even her with the, with the jackets, you realize that most of the rules around us are part of the paper thin walls. Yeah. And that this construct is completely nothing but a construct. And actually, we've got the infinite power that we need to make the change that's out there. Simple. It is, it is just a construct. What was your dad's book about? It was about democratic law. So how does the individual understand the legal process?
1: Really? Yeah. And what did he do for a living?
0: Um, weirdly, he he was the first in his family to go to university. He studied law, did quite well, realised it wasn't for him. So left, started working with young people in South London, um, was asked to do a quite radical new law programme at South Bank Poly, as it then was. That was his thing. Uh, And then with some of his students, uh, decided to start a revolutionary new kind of law firm. And it would be all about bringing law to the people in the community. And it was based on Brixton High Street, within uh, about 20 metres from my first office. Really? I had no idea. Really? No idea.
1: But you didn't know, did you know he'd set up that business though?
0: I knew that he'd been a lawyer and he'd, he'd done a kind of like new law for good type firm. Right. That was as far as I knew. But
1: nobody was talking about your dad?
0: No when I then discovered later all of this stuff about the journey of my dad and everything else and how closely my life had mirrored his with Scarlett being born and me really like wanting to not mirror everything he'd done i.e. die because yeah. I realised that in fact and I've been thinking about it a lot this year because I'm now 42 which is the age when he died and Scarlett's 5 which is the age I was so I knew I needed to break this kind of spell having found out about it I spoke to my mum and she told me that there was actually this piece of unfinished business. In his will, he'd asked that at South Bank Uni, on the course that he taught, a special prize would be made for whoever came last each year. And his belief was that whoever came last possibly... Needed some help. ...worked the hardest, right? Because, right. you know, everyone in the middle's kind of got there. People at the top probably quite smart or have you know, been supported. And whoever just made it over the line yeah. actually deserves some recognition. And the university had said, no chance. You know, we're not celebrating failure. That's all the wrong way around. So I tried to pick it up, but try and start that conversation 37 years after. Hello. Uh, (laughs) I thought, fuck, how am I going to track this down? I thought, well, then the information is public. So then I could find out who came last. Then I could go and track them down on social media and give them a check. And that would be weird. And then that young lady that I told you about turned up at the office. right? Literally turned up, as many of our young people do, to tell us how they've done. Uh, She'd done her first two years at Southbank Uni. She'd had to take some time out because she'd had a child. Um, child had been born with significant learning difficulties so that led to further time out but she was a dedicated woman and she would finally got through her final year and she'd passed but she'd come last in the class at South Bank Uni so the person who came last literally walked in the door within yeah. weeks of me discovering this and trying to find an answer to it so I I still feel it now, even saying, saying the story, sat down and relayed all of this to her and asked her if it wouldn't be too patronising that I could write her a check on behalf of my dead dad and, like, be done with this. That's beautiful. Something, isn't it? Yeah. And it's so apparent now to me, like, I spend so much of my time worrying, like, as, as clearly you have been doing, mm. you know, five five years of worry. Who's going to give a fuck about that in a year from now or a week from now? No one, like, uh, no one, literally. And I couldn't, I could, if I wanted to, I'd never find out what he was thinking. But I do know what he did. And so, as his mortality leads me to think of my own mortality and my children force me to think about the future and what's worth fighting for, fucking stop worrying. You know, there's this, this, the intention isn't going to be good enough. Another five years spent sitting on the fence, what we're going to do doesn't matter a shit. The fact that you've got off your Worry and made an action and, the, and it's a physical visible thing that some of those kids are going to reevaluate their lives on the back of i think that's what matters and i think sometimes that's all that matters
1: that'll do that's the out that's the end <laughs> boom great <laughs> wicked man what a pleasure This episode of Sour House Stories was brought to you by Radio Wolfgang and Sour House. It featured me, George Lamb, talking to Sam Conniff-Alander. To find out more about Sam's book, go to www.bemorepirate.com. So
0: Conniff is English? It's of Irish descent. Um, Most usually misspelled as Coffin, which I always quite enjoy. That's my evil alter ego. Sam Coffin. (laughs) No one wants to be called Sam
1: Coffin.